Hello, and welcome to the Aseret Podcast, where we learn about character, kindness, wisdom, and values from living examples of inspiring people. How many of you have a strong, deep-rooted desire to rob a jewelry store or to steal the beautiful Lamborghini you saw the other day? My guess would be none of you. It's just not within your realm of choice to do. But what about the desire to yell at your loved one or to snooze the alarm day after day? I am sure these moral dilemmas hit a little closer to home. You might be asking, why do I bring this up? Well, the great Rav Eliyahu Dessler describes a concept of utmost significance in the human understanding of free will. It is called the Nakuda Tabakhira, or choice point. In life, our choices do not exist in a vacuum. Each of us have grown up with different temperaments, inclinations, environments, and life experiences that impact our decision-making and define what tempts us. Our real moral challenges are when we struggle on the battlefield between doing right and wrong, tempted to do the wrong, but have a fighting chance to do the right. Yes, people in a single moment can do tshuva and completely turn their life around, but for most people in most situations, changing growth is slow and balanced. For example, it is very likely that a person who grew up keeping Shabbat is not tempted from week to week to break it. Sure, they are rewarded for observance, but that is not where their character is tested. And yet another person may have started attempting to keep Shabbat at a later time in life. They have won some battles and now keep Friday night. Their current struggle is extended to keeping Shabbat till after morning services. Keeping a full Shabbat is likely outside of the realm of their choice point, and not keeping it at all is no longer their battle. Our guest today, Reb Arthur Stern, is a criminal lawyer and mensch par excellence. He has also been involved heavily in many incredible Jewish causes as a lay fundraiser especially with the Village Shul in Toronto, Canada. Wherever he goes, he tries to bring wisdom, words of encouragement, laughter, and simcha to those he shares moments with. And he defends people whose choice points are likely much more different than our own. Yes, of course, they are responsible for the crimes they commit. But what do you expect from a person who was born into a third-generation family involved in organized crime? It would take superhuman effort for them to do full tshuva, and escape that life. Before you look at yourself as all good and them as all bad, ask yourself while listening to this episode, what is your choice point and what is theirs? In this fascinating episode, we can get a special inside view of the criminal law profession. Reb Arthur is raw and honest about the challenges his clients face with the eighth debair of Lotignov, do not steal. With humor and humility, he also describes the difficulties he himself faces in his own practice, as being a criminal lawyer can be fraught with moral dilemmas. I think this episode can really help us develop a sensitivity to just how hard it is to be good, how much effort and devotion it takes, and how appreciative we can be when we do the right thing and make the changes. We are complicated beings, but one thing is for sure. It sure feels so good to be good and do good in this world. Arthur Stern, thank you so much for coming on to speak with us on the Aseret podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure. I've known you for a long time. A lot of people know Arthur Stern for, for many reasons, but there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that don't know you. So let's just hear, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a familially, um, I'm a father uh, of three beautiful children who you know, real good people, heroes of, micro heroes of mine, you might say. and. I'm married to a, a real Asia's Chayel, a real beautiful woman, Ellie, and we've been married 37 years. And, you know, thank God we're, we're in sync. 
and uh, I've, in order to keep that family provided, I was called to the bar. I went to, I graduated uh, Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto, and not unlike Eddie Greenspan, probably at the bottom of my class, but not unlike Eddie Greenspan in terms of earning capacity, higher up. So it just shows you what social intelligence sometimes uh, it means uh, in a profession and people skills, which I think I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have. And I was, uh, when I was in law school, my, my dream was to be a sports lawyer. And at the time I represented about 60 junior hockey players in the OHL uh, with a partner. And uh, we did that until got to the point where my partner got married, had a child, home mortgage, and he couldn't do it anymore. So I was sort of left going to the arenas and that was tough. And I had to get my articles and I wanted still to be a sports lawyer, player's agent. And I worked for a criminal lawyer, Barry Fox, who was a friend of my cousin's just to get my articles. And uh, he sent me one day as a student, article student, on attempt murder. And his instructions to me were, Arthur, just put the case over to another day and I'll take care of it. And I came back to the office and he said, what date did it go over to? And I said, Barry, she got bail. He said, she got what? How'd she get bail? I said, well, you know, spoke to the Crown and connected with them, put together a plan and, and she got bail. And I decided then that, you know, I'm passionate about criminal law and from 1981 until today, I've specialized in, in criminal law, probably have represented over that 40 year period, 40 plus years, probably over 30,000 people. Wow, 30,000 30, people with obviously varying stories, varying degrees of criminality. Uh, and the underlying motive there is, uh, Amongst many things, you mentioned a career needing to provide is helping people that have done things that are not, or let's say less than ideal or, or wrong, bad. And they've, I want to ask you a lot about that. They've, they've, they've committed hates. Hates. Right? They've, gone yes. off, they've gone off the mark. And, and most people, Arthur, you know, we're talking about the Aserit Hedibrot as being a little closer to home. So for example, something like Lotignov, don't steal, which we're going to talk about. Of course, on the, on the maximal level, we talk about it as being don't steal a life. That's what Rashi says. Um, so that's kidnapping. That's the, the highest form. But each of us can relate to minor infractions of stealing. Thankfully, most people don't know too many people that are big time thieves, big time murderers. Um, but you are, you do encounter people like this all the time. So I want to learn a little bit about that. But before, can you just tell us a little bit about your story? Uh, uh, the way you've described it to me is BT and AT. And I'm wondering if you can just work us through a little bit about that. Sure. So, so BT is uh, before Torah. Uh, and I say before Torah, it, it wasn't like I was unaffiliated or, or disconnected. I used to take your good friend with me to the Beth Shalom on Shabbos, and our Shabbos consisted of listening to Torah reading and then going to uh, United uh, Dairy and, and getting- United soup, Bakers. United Bakers and getting a soup and going to Bubbies. That was it, but we had a Shabbos. It was, the light was on, right? 
But what happened was um, my first 15 years of practice really was devoted to business building and uh, making a name for myself and uh, giving cases to other lawyers and learning from other lawyers and just almost, almost you might say like a bit of a cab driver, whoever came in and paid the fare, I would represent. And at, at one point um, in, the, in those 15 years, my first 15 years, I was probably one of the top 10 billers on the Ontario Legal Aid Plan because I, I made sure that people had access to a lawyer and I was willing to take on uh, people. And it turned out that as, as a young lawyer, my name got out in a lot of under uh, privileged communities, a uh, lot of ethnic immigrant communities. And you could go into my office. I used to have Tuesdays with Arthur, not Tuesdays with Maury. And you'd come in on a Tuesday night. You were never zoichet to do that because you had no interest in law, but a lot of your friends have, and they're now practicing law. But they'll tell you those Tuesday nights, it was like the UN in my office. We had people from every possible background, ethnically. And, you know, that, that you know, I know you, I know you want to speak about kicking uh, up, but that to me came from the first Deber, okay? I'm a Shem, we took you out of Egypt. And that the whole reason that we went down to Egypt was to work on our character and to work on our sensitivity trait. And I had, you know, probably growing up in a home as, of survivors and all my aunts and uncles are survivors and cousins. I, I had that sensitivity gene uh, that made me more available, a better listener to people who came in who were, you know, foreigners in a strange land. Like we were foreigners in a strange land. And I was able during that period of time to, uh, you know, deal with that type of clientele. And my name spread. I took care of the boys in Jane Finch. I took care of the Tamil community. I took care of the Portuguese community who are more of an immigrant community uh, back then. And the white collar guys went to, you know, the top guys. So that was the first 15 years. You also spent time actually going yes. into the jails. What yes. was that like? I would go down into Egypt. I'd go down into Mitraim, into the dark places. And, you know, it, it, it was a sacrifice because I'd leave my practice after court, which would be five o'clock. And I'd head out to the jails, the Metro East Detention Center, the Metro West Detention Center, the Dawn Jail which is the last place they, they, they hung somebody in 1964. And I would go there and I would sit in a little three by three room and I would wait for clients to come in. They, the guards would bring them in from the cells. And I was really their, their only link, okay, to the outside. I was the only one who would really listen to them because not a lot of family, you know, a lot of them came from backgrounds that were broken. And they didn't have family, they, they came to see him. And I spent a lot of time, what, you know, I call, you know, hand-holding. And I think that builds up a trust because as, as I had a judge say to me recently, which was a really nice compliment, it was on a Zoom call, which is now how we conduct the practice of criminal law and the criminal justice system is, is on Zoom. So this justice, Justice Sheila Ray, 
it was a, a, a Jewish judge. He's got a heart of gold, uh, all compassion and defense oriented. And she said, you know, Mr. Stern, when a client and you come before the court, I really feel like he's part of your family. I really feel like you, you've taken him on. And that's, that's what, you know, I, I, I did. Okay. Before I went to Israel and on that a learning whole, mission. And, and that whole part of your career, Arthur, yeah. is two main things. One was building the yeah. business, getting your name out there. You mentioned really billing a lot, that typical maybe lawyer persona, almost a hustler, let's say, like you're, 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 you're in there, but you also yeah. developed something, what I would say the tour of your home, uh, the kindness that your parents were showing to others, the sensitivity that you grew up with. It was before... Torah in some sort of maybe formalized sense, but you were getting something from home and you tried to incorporate that right, into right. your legal practice during those early years. So, no, that's a great, that's a great way of putting it that I was, I was getting Torah that wasn't necessarily codified, but my parents were living Torah, right? Tell you a cute story. Well, that, well so that's what Rabbi you. Sachs says that people, there are books, yeah. Torah books and Torah people. Right, right, right. So I'll tell you a cute story. Every Tuesday, I used to have, uh, just like a Tuesdays with Arthur in the office at night, I had Tuesdays with Dorothy, my mother, for lunch every Tuesday. The judges knew that they had to go a little early because I was going to my mother's house. She used to make me these concleton, these big bumbaclat burgers. My dad would buy Zemmels, three Zemmels, okay? Rye Zemmels from Isaacs, okay, three pickles and a Verner's. I'd go back to court sleeping. But when I was there, okay, the whole conversation was it was it was beautiful because all my father wanted to know was, are you winning and are you getting paid? Right? And all my mother wanted to know was tell me about the boy, tell me about the family, tell me how a good boy from a good family did something that was bad. And I would tell her stories and she would cry, say, Ma, why are you crying? You don't even know him. She says, because he had a mother too. So she felt she felt his pain. So that was, you know, the first- So that, thing. that works out very well in the sense of one tight teeping from your dad, which is very important. What's the bottom line? How are you going to provide and take care of people? And from your mom, how are you really going to take care of them in the transcendent of money? And so- you downloaded that into your practice and into your world by osmosis. And my dad, my dad Oliver Shalom, had an expression. And it, it's it's one that I keep us on today. I, I don't really hold by, but lawyers never win or lose. They only get paid. Okay, and that's that was his view of the world, you know, surviving nine nine uh, concentration camps, you know, right. the the Pardasa was was uh, uh, paramount. So, um, so what happened in 1997? So, 97, I ended up going with ten guys to Asia Torah to to learn in the yeshiva. Uh, surprised I'm still not there, but I had to <laughs> had to come home, okay, to provide provide for my family. And while we were there, you know, we learned uh, with the dean and and founding uh, visionary of Asia Torah, Rev. Noach Weinberg, your namesake uh, to some extent. And, 
And he said to me, as we were going back, we were there for uh, uh, 10 days, learning in, in, intensively uh, every day. And he came at the end of the day to teach us 48 ways uh, to wisdom. And we actually had a Bolshuva litigation lawyer, a Philadelphia lawyer, as they call it, a Bolshuva from Philadelphia, who had a successful career for 40 years. He gave it all up. He came to Aish, he got smicha, and he taught legal ethics. So we had clients, believe it or not, we got credited for it because we have continuing legal hours. We have to, we actually went to Yeshiva. We learned. Well, well, what's that's probably even greater than any other continuing education you could do. Oh, are you kidding? It was, I mean, it's still today and you know, eternal. It's still in, you know, in my bones. So both he and the Rosh Yeshiva sat me down. And this is the after Torah. And they said, they, they said, Abraham. I said, I said, what Rosh Yeshiva? He says, you're going back to Toronto to be a criminal lawyer. I said, yes, Rosh Yeshiva. He says, do you think you're going to act the way you did before you came to the Yeshiva to learn Torah? Or do you think you're going to be acting differently after Torah? And, and that was a paradigm shift. What about it? What I did you back, learn? What, what? Yeah. What changed for you in your practice? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what changed. Did it give your? Me. Did it give your what? career some sort of calling or something? Did it, did something? Was it different how you looked at people? You know, Noah, you hit the nail on the head, as Ellie would always say. Okay. Um, so we're called. We're called to the bar. That's an interesting word. It's not Charlie C. Yeah, we're, it's a calling. And, you know, when I was first starting my practice, I'll, I'll never forget a good friend of mine, Steve Skirka, who's a very prominent uh, defense counsel in Toronto. And, and at his wedding, which was filled with top-notch criminal lawyers, I was sitting be, beside Eddie Greenspan and Brian Greenspan, the two foremost criminal lawyers, maybe of all time in Canada. And Steve started off by saying, he says, you know, I have a friend. He's a baby doctor. He says, but people don't call him a baby. He says, why is it with criminal lawyers, people call them, okay, criminal. <laughs> okay. So baby doctor, he's not called a baby. But you know what, when you tell somebody you're a criminal lawyer, they go, oh, you're, you're, you're a criminal. And it, it might be in jest, but there's there's some truth in it. What is the truth in it? What is the in, truth in it? The, the truth is, is you're in an environment, okay, that is is morally uh, uh, not on on uh, target. Uh, you're in an environment that's fraught with ethical challenges, right? Let me tell you, I'm, I'm involved right now in a, a domestic case for a guy who's got a serious alcohol problem. And, and he, he was sober for six months and he was on a bail for assaulting this particular woman. And he said to her, I have to drink. I, I can't stay sober. She says, if you drink, I'm gone. And he went and drank a bottle and, and ended up beating her, okay, to a pulp, to the point where she was hospitalized. 
She got out, Mochi Shabbos. Who do I get a call from? I get a call from the victim. Okay. So here I am in a situation, right, where I'm now, I, I can speak to a victim because as we say in law, there's no property in a witness. I'm allowed to listen to a victim. That's just one situation, right, where you're on uh, ethical thin ice and you're torn, right? You're torn between one, I, I can help my client by hearing the actual story before his bail hearing, and that's going to assist them. She might be recanting, right? So I have to be a two, okay, maybe I'll get to the point where I'll, I'll, it, it's very, you know, very, very perilous because maybe I'll get to the point where I'll direct her evidence a bit. And, and this is an area, uh, Noah, uh, it, it fits into another debore, right? About not having somebody testify falsely Mm-hmm. This is mummish this is mummish area where a lot of lawyers, okay. It's like you don't know, only... truth isn't always truth is dangerous sometimes because you the more you know, the harder it is to do your job in certain that's all that's a whole other can of worms. So how does the AT right. perspective impact how did it impact you? How did it change your practice? Because because so 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 let let me tell you how it's a paradigm shift. So now I'm coming back, I'm in a minion, I'm coming to court and I look around the building with the other criminal lawyers and I can see that, I'm gonna use a, a, a Yiddish word, it's not really a Yiddish word, but I can see that they're becocked, they're not happy campers because they're, they're really immersed in, in this world of sadness and this world of people falling down and having to get up, you know, it's, it, it's a tough gig. I come into the court after davening and learning, and I'm basimcha, right? And it's amazing how that changes your approach to your client, because now you've got a client where you can, in, instead of being, God forbid, a chilul Hashem, you can be a kiddush Hashem, because you can be a better listener. It's another D-Bear. That's another D-Bear. You can uh, judge them. And this, and this is when we first spoke, I, I, I told you what my macro approach since is what Rebbe Kiva says, right? Love your neighbor and yourself, but implicit in that is judging him meritoriously. Okay, who, who more to judge meritoriously than somebody charged with the wrongdoing, okay? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a big challenge. So then I decided, you know, it's not about business now. It's about... I'm coming into court. Now, there was a big shyla when I came back from Israel, whether I wear my kippah in court. And they formed a little base den at the village shul, okay? Reb Moshe Feinstein, Sakhar Levracha, he ruled on that, okay? And said, when it comes to whether or not there's a potential Hiloshem, that you don't have to wear your kippah, right? So I'm in this environment where there could be, right? And also, I'm in an environment with, with people who didn't know me as a keeper-wearing person. I didn't want to let that get in the way of their defense, right? But I'll tell you how it did. I tell you, and I still realize that people know I'm in shul, and people know that I've changed. 
and I've got a responsibility. Okay, now whether I wear a keeper or not, I'm representing, I'm an ambassador of the Jewish people. So I'll tell you a, a, a great story. So it was a Shana Rabbah, and you know what the davening's like on a Shana Rabbah, okay? And we have judicial pretrials at nine in the morning. I didn't leave the village school till 9.40. I didn't get to the judicial pretrial till 10 o'clock. And it was a serious case. It was about 20 bank robberies with guns. And there were multiple defense counsel, multiple detectives. And there was a judge, Justice Lord Marshall, okay, who had the biggest heart ever in the history of, of the bench in Toronto, okay? Even though she represented Zundel. Are you sitting down? Okay. Yeah. Did I hear she that right? She represented Zundel until it stopped being a constitutional argument, freedom of speech. When he wanted her to promote Nazism, she backed. Anyhow, so she was a, a great jurist and knowledgeable and, and very, very uh, uh, fair, very merciful. So I come into uh, her uh, office and everybody is the Crown attorneys, the police. They're looking at me with dagger eyes. And she says, she says, listen, she says, I know where Mr. Stern was this morning. And he was answerable to a higher authority. <laughs> and that really sums up for you. I mean, there's probably many connections between learning about Jewish legal, Jewish legalism, the entire Gemara, and how that's impacted you. But on a much more fundamental level, it's that you've you are now a representative of the Jewish people. There's a responsibility that you have in that sense. And you are responsible not just to the game and the laws of the legal world, but to a, to a higher power. And, and maybe that has had a trickle-down effect on your career. You can, anything in life, Noah, you can be at the, the light at Eglinton and Old Park and, you know, help an old lady across the street. You can be at Kiddush Hashem or you can just, you know, be concerned about getting into your car and doing your fob and, not not focus on that. You could be a kiddushem, you'd be a chiloshem. But I focus when I went before a judge in how I address the court. Okay, it's funny because in my BT days, I was a guy that was very uh, abrupt in court with count because I was avenging. I was coming from a place where my parents had a state oppress them. And I was trying to remedy that to some extent, that nobody else would suffer and be oppressed like that. When I saw oppression like that from a Crown attorney, I would speak out openly in court and I would put him on the spot. And I was at a, a chasana two weeks ago and I ran into this Crown attorney who I just really you know, ripped him apart in open court. And the judge, knew that this guy is, is, doesn't treat defendants fairly. And he was silent, right? Most judges would say, oh, Mr. Stern, that's not appropriate. A personal attack on this crown attorney. So I felt bad about it. You know why? Because this is BT. This isn't, okay, this isn't AT. I felt bad about it no, because it was Arab Rosh Hashanah. So I go in to see this crown. The court before the, the court. Yeah. I know I go to see, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. And I can mention who the crown is because uh, he speaks about this with me all the time. Phil Perlmutter, he's, he, he, right now, he's probably done the last 10 big cases in the Supreme Court of Canada on drinking and driving laws. So I, I see him at this uh, chasana. He Which says, is a wedding. Are, 
yeah, a wedding. And he says, he says, Arthur, he says, you know, I remember you coming into my office and you apologizing. And I told you that Arthur, if, if you know Jewish law, he says, that's not sufficient. He says, you have to go back into court and you have to apologize, okay, publicly. He says, if you really, okay, want to do tshuva with me, okay, starts coming. <laughs> this guy, this guy was already probably was with the Rosh Hashiva a month earlier, right? And I did. I went in, I went into court and, and I said, Your Honor, uh, I had a talk with Mr. Crowmutter. I expressed uh, my remorse in having spoken to him like that in court. And I think it's only proper that if I'm going to clean the slate with him, I have to come to court and apologize on the record. Right. So these are all examples of taking a beat, the career before the positives that were there, some of the things that you needed to work on and just making your career better, but more sanctified, more meaningful, more elevated as best as possible. And uh, I appreciate that sort of backstory. I want to get into today with you a little bit on the seventh, the eighth D-Bear, Lotignov, do not steal. The first thing I want to ask you is just what comes to mind for you when you hear this D-Bear? What comes to mind is uh, if, if it were not for people transgressing that commandment, then I would say 90% of my my practice would wouldn't exist wow i tell people i i i know i talk about a debate that that I, I i don't think you and rav shalom have uh, really canvas i talk about the 11th commandment and i tell my clients thou shall not be stupid right and it's it's really when you see there's a whole world of theft but I, I'm just going to divide it up right now for our purposes into two, okay, categories, two, two genres of that. One is the impulsive, then the other is the planned and sophisticated theft. Okay, so I represent both communities, right? So the, what happens with the impulsive theft, okay, thou shall not be 11 commandments, stupid because stupidity, Right, you go into Yorkdale with some friends, and you you know want that Lululemon because you know you don't have one, and and, and it goes against all the values that have been you know imprinted in you, and you do something that's that's totally out of character for you, and it tends if you're really applied your mindfulness, no way in the world, right? If you thought about oi arrest. Oi, my parents have to come down. Oi, gonna have to go to court. They're gonna have to hire a lawyer. Oi, fingerprints. Okay. Oi, I'm gonna go through the criminal justice. So I could be criminalized. Oi, it's gonna affect, right? If it was mindful, you'd be deterred. But because it's impulsive, because it's all Yates or Hora, that that represents that represents probably if thefts are 90% of my practice, that's probably 90% of the thefts, right? And I'm guessing that's for a lot of men between the ages of 18 to 30 or something like that. Yeah, women, women too. Women too. Of course, of course. Yeah. No, well, just, yeah. and, and we'll probably edit that part out, but really it's just because yeah. most people that are impulsive are 
like sorry, the brain development, especially in men right. between that age, is just highly underdeveloped. Um, but yeah. but the other genre is the commercial, okay, shoplifter, and I act for communities like that. They're planned, they're sophisticated, and that's their business, okay. And it's very funny because I um, after I came back from. Yerushalayim and, and, and learned, I took a rumbum approach to people charged with thefts. What does that mean? So I took the approach that if people went, went through a model of tshuva, so what I would do is I, I have, uh, I'm not going to disclose her name, but she's one of the top therapists, Jewish in, in the city. And her and I have developed a, uh, an approach to people charged with shoplifting. I call it shoplifting because it's not major crime. It's not theft over, it's theft under. And what we do is we take people through the model of tshuva that the Rumbum sets out. So what's, what's that? So the, the first thing is that you admit, right? The wrongdoing. Okay, what I did was plain wrong. The next step, is that you say, hey, I'm gonna stop, right? This isn't gonna happen again. The step, the third step is you're gonna feel remorse because it's it's pasnich, it's unbecoming. It's unbecoming to the family you come from. It's unbecoming to the community, it's unbecoming to yourself. You're gonna genuinely feel the remorse. And then what you're gonna do is you're gonna take steps that if you're back in that situation, if you're back in the Lululemon store again, that the fences are up and you're not going to commit that theft. And we, we do this over a period of about 10 sessions. And what the uh, client does, what the defendant does, is he immerses himself into the underlying psychological factors that gave rise to his committing uh, the theft. And so that, so most of your practice is dealing with Lotignov. You've mentioned some lower level, Lotignov, lower level meaning, again, low numbers of theft. The impulsive one seems, of course, much easier to deal with because it's a ruach shtus. It's some sort of moment of a, a spirit of stupidity enters into you. I think there's even a quote about that somewhere. Uh, my Torah source person, will, whoever that is, will, say, will tell me, but that people don't do a sin without a ruach shtus entering into them. So there's a momentary... Right experience where somebody goes against their values and that is disappointing but it seems that the process of tshuva is easier now what about for the people that have a sophisticated well thought out plan where it's not a ruach shtus moment but it's a bit of a mastermind they're devoting their god-given energies to theft so how do you relate to those people great great question and so i i act for gypsy communities so i act for for romas and i act for the polish gypsies those are uh, the, the ones living living in toronto for the most part and they not only are they planned and sophisticated but the rcmp has had them declared part of a criminal organization because the way they go go out and shoplift, it's organized, and they do this in a way that nothing can deter them. 
from doing this. Okay, this is not only do they 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 feel uh, justified morally in doing it because it, it's a long story about the, the background, the culture of, of gypsies. Well, how do they justify they, it? I'm just wondering because I think part of what the Asserta de Broad is saying is that there are things that are right and wrong. Of course, there's nuances. Right. When is it appropriate? Right. Lo Tzach is not just this indiscriminate, right. you know. So, right. so what yeah. is the justification? And you probably hear a lot of justification. So, give me so, the justification. So it's, no, it's it, it's 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 like uh, nobody. If, if you speak to uh, Arabs and Jews today, they can't tell you what the 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 source of the the conflict is, right? Because over the years, it's it's gotten bigger because people don't want to know the lambdas, the rationale behind it. So in most of the situations, it's passed down from generation to generation. You have a sense of entitlement. Okay. And when they come to see me, they call me the king of the gypsies. And they'd say to me, their instructions to me, okay, is just terminate it make it go away okay and nothing about we're going to plead guilty okay nothing about we'll get probation and part of probation is we'll get treatment nothing about we'll go to remedial schools and learn about child. in fact i had this one case where a crown attorney said to me it was a big big commercial okay uh theft talking i'm talking about hundreds of thousands of jewelry stores done by Romas, by distraction thefts, where they go in, husband and wife, husband and wife, four people, and by the time they're done, the guy's out a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of jewelry. Has no idea until he takes his inventory, okay? So, Crown Attorney came to me and says, look, if they go for counseling and acknowledge and do the chuva process, didn't say chuva, okay, but there's real remorse, karata, there's sincere remorse, he says, and you can get me the jewelry back, okay? Or you can get me the proceeds of the jewelry that we can give it back to the jeweler, the vendor, because he'll be bankrupt if he doesn't have that stock, right? This is pre-COVID, and COVID, he definitely would be bankrupted, right? He said, we'll withdraw the charges. So I said, you know, I got to give it a shot. So I sent him to therapy, okay, and they couldn't get out of the gate. <laughs> and and what? But this story is very important because you mentioned that in, as a jest that people say criminal lawyer, you're a criminal. So are there times that it feels like you're complicit in Lotignov with them? What what is this? What are you when you said that they're the key or the king of the gypsies? Can you spell that out for the, for us a little bit? They know that the king will take care of his subjects, even though you know. Okay. And first of all, what does taking care mean? They're, they're saying, we're not stopping. So we're going to go back out tomorrow or in a week and do our thing again. Your job is to save us here. And we're telling you we have no interest in changing. So that's almost, uh, you know, coming into this was how are you helping others with Lotignov, which I still want to get to. But how do you, yeah. how does that happen? So, how do you understand? So, so Noah, yeah. okay, good cross-examination. And you're right. It's an ethical. It's an ethical problem. It's an ethical. In fact, 
the greatest criminal lawyer, and I said it was Eddie and Brian, and, 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 and they're right up there, but probably the greatest criminal lawyer in the history of this country is a, a, a real gentleman and a class act, could have been on Supreme Court of Canada anytime. Same as Austin Cooper. And Austin Cooper, he had a policy and it was codified that he would never act for the same person twice. Wow. Now, Noah, I'm acting now. You talk about ethical dilemmas and problems and ethical minefields, and you're right. There is, there is some complicitness, right, in it. I'll deal with that in a second, okay, in, in kind of justifying the complicity, okay, or the apparent complicity. Yes. Right? All right. It's, it's a great question. Um, but, you know, I'm acting on third generation of, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And, and I've had, and I've had, and I'll tell you, uh, um, and this is, you know, a little mitigation on my part. Uh, I had this gypsy family come into my office. The daughter was speaking on their behalf because they uh, didn't speak English that well. They were Polish gypsies and they were involved in a rash, okay, of house break-ins, all right? Uh, in the Bathurst Manor area, actually, okay? Close to home, okay? <laughs> on, Palm, on Palm Street, okay? You know, on Palm Avenue, right? Palm Drive? Palm Drive, Palm Drive, Palm Drive. So, so the daughter was just so unbelievably articulate. And she was communicating on her parents' behalf and she was listening and she was copying it. She was getting it and she was giving it over and she understood the legal concepts. And at the end I said, you know, I said, do you mind just sitting here and sending your parents into the waiting room? I wanna to speak to you. And I said to her, I said, you have to break this cycle. I said, you are, you're, you're somebody I can see. You're not part of this. You're somebody who is elevated. You have enormous potential. And I really, one day would like to hear you call me up and say, Mr. Stern, could I work for you as an articling student? And sure enough, in the summer, I got that call. Wow. And I think that that you know, however they get out and, and they get back in there, you know, it could, in, in, in your defense here, it could be anybody. But the fact that it's Arthur Stern, maybe there are seeds that you can plant, knowing that this is right. way beyond you. Someone's going to do it, okay? Yeah. Someone's yeah. going to go and take yeah. on that case. Yeah. But maybe Arthur Stern, seeing that this is really complicated, this is a multi-generation of sin, multi-generations. So part of the Asterite de Brodus talks about how things can pass through the gener generations. You grow up in that world. That's your world. You're kind of screwed. Your, your level of, uh, of, of what they call in uh, Rav Dessler, uh, the Nakuda Bechira, your choice point is not between am I going to steal or not steal. That's yeah. not fair. For yeah. most of us, our yeah. ethical dilemmas, thank God, are low and small. At least for these people, yeah. the fact that it's you Hopefully you can plant seeds and, 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 and hopefully move them a little bit from yeah. where they were to somewhere better.
Right. So you, you, there are situations, Noah, and, and, you know, we know that before Hashem created the world, he created the concept of tshuva. So we know that anybody is capable, right? Because why? everybody is capable and anybody is capable. Because, because of, and many of the debrots uh, speak to this, because they're created in the image of God, right? They have, and you've had great Devar Taurus on this. They, they have a piece of God in them, okay? And to the extent that they do, okay, that part of them, okay, can be touched and they can return, okay, to that, that Hashem soul that, that is, is breathed into them, right? The B'Tselem Elohim uh, in them. And with these people, like you say, that are generational thieves, generational commercial thieves, what's happened is they put up an orla, okay? And they're so removed from their neshamas that they've all almost made tshuva impossible. And your goal in those situations, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have a lot more inspiring cases to talk about, yeah. but your goal there is, okay, someone's going to get them out. We're going to get these people out. Hopefully I can say or do something impactful here that'll, you know, plant a seed. And you did plant a seed, it seems like, with this one person. Yeah, well, no, you have to pick your spots, right? So the the approach to these commercial generational shoplifters, as we've now characterized them, Lo'alenu, okay? The approach to them is I go into it and, and I don't want to sound mechanical, but with them, I, I have to be. And I go in as a classic hired gun. And, you know, my, my AT really isn't being integrated in their representation. It's pretty cold hearted. I'm playing the card of the criminal justice system they can't process all these cases. The administration of justice, only 2% of all cases get tried. Okay, people don't realize that. So 98% of all cases get resolved, okay, through the plea bargaining process, through guilty pleas, through uh, a process that, that's because theft is so per, uh, prevailing, okay, in the criminal justice system, they have developed an entire system called diversion, okay? So if you are a impulsive first time shoplifter, you get diverted out of the criminal justice system. You write a letter of apology, okay? It's sort of like a little informal chuba thing, okay? I do the more formal stuff for more serious charges, but you get, you know, a Walmart uh, theft, okay? Um, of an item, let's say $200 and under, you're referred to a diversion uh, person and they'll either have you do some community service, get back to the community. They'll either have you uh, uh, write a letter, okay, explain the lessons of your uh, offense, or they'll have you make a donation, usually in the sum of, of the theft. And if you meet the criteria, of diversion, your charges get withdrawn 
You have to make a, in, in the agreement, in the agreement is not admission of criminal responsibility, not an admission of civil, okay, liability or criminal liability, but an admission of responsibility. Okay, so there is an acceptance. There's, you know, the, the remorse, remorse part. So that that exists for a certain chunk, big chunk. Okay, and is and now in COVID, because the court facilities are challenged, that amount of theft. If it used to be a two hundred fifty dollar item, you were eligible for divergence. It's now gone up to a thousand dollar item. Okay, so that's a whole other planet there, but essentially, it's, yeah. it's part of this is mechanical, um, and right. It, right. it is it is the way it is. I think that's probably for you one of the bigger ethical gray areas of of your practice, yeah. and and I appreciate well, you and until, I, until you impacted for me. I got to be honest with you. I was I've been willfully blind to it. Mm. Okay that I'm, you know, acting for generational commercial shoplifters or thieves, not shoplifters. First of all, you know, I think it's important to just, the way I think about all of, all of this stuff is, I don't know how it works in a day-to-day -day sense, Arthur, but it sounds like, you know, it's one of those situations where maybe you will see a change, maybe, maybe, or maybe your job, your job, or your role there, is to understand that it is a mechanical process. But maybe there's two percent of of an ashama you thing you can do there, a little thing here and a little thing there. That who knows? But maybe you're up against a Goliath. Well, there's there. not. It, let me tell you something. It's very interesting because uh, one of my commercial Polish gypsy people. Okay, um, they uh, were from my parents' hometown in Ostruster, right? So when they came, they, yeah, so when they came to the office and I spoke to them about their background, right? And, and where are you from? And they said, we're from Ostrovitz. And I looked at them and I said, I hope they're not living in my parents' house. <laughs> Well, that's a whole. There's a gener. That's a generational discussion about your relationship with the Polish community, uh, and wow. There's. <laughs> I, I think for now it's a lot to think about dealing with so many complex moral questions that most people do not have to confront in a day to day level. So I'm going to end it. We're we're about to wrap up, right? Yeah. So I'm going to end it with the biggest case of theft I've had in my career and i was representing an italian mother of of three children under five years of age and she was an accountant with a a, a public company a company that did hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenues and what she did was she set up a false client and she she set up a uh, false bank account and she had that client, right? Uh, allegedly being paid, okay, from them for services rendered. And over, unbeknownst, not on anybody's radar screen, over a period of 10 years, 
She stole $15 million, okay? And she couldn't be, you meet her, she's not Ma Barker. You meet her, she is an Ashama, okay? Like, she came to me because the company found out about this in an internal investigation, and they were proceeding civilly. And she had a family that were rallying around her. They knew the enormity of this, and they knew the potential consequences to, uh, to her because for $15 million theft over 10 years, you go to jail for 10 years, okay? And that would destroy her life and destroy her children, destroy her family, okay? Her entire family, they're a close family. And what happened was the civil turned into criminal because they realized that they weren't, the company realized they weren't getting restitution. And they went to the detectives of the fraud squad and they had her charged criminally, okay? So I developed a relationship with the detective because she'd already come to me. And I said, listen, I'm gonna surrender her to you. And he said, great Arthur, he says, you surrender, I'm gonna release her from the station. It's not necessary for her to have a bail hearing, right? I trust she's got roots in the community, she's gonna show up to court, and I trust she's not gonna reoffend. I said, she's not. I said, because she's already attended about 50 gambler, okay, anonymous meetings. Okay, she's currently actually a facilitator, okay, at Gamblers Anonymous. Okay, you talk, you talk about turnaround, right? And what I did, okay, is I sent her off to intensive therapy before a charge was laid. She went into the police station, okay, before being alleged of committing a wrongdoing. She went into the station and she handed over, and I made sure she, she went with this, she handed over a letter from the therapist, which was deep, 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 okay, about what was going on in her life, what, how she became uh, an addicted gambler and how she was living a double life and how she was leaving work early and coming home a little late, okay, and losing it all at Rama, okay? So I ended up, be, because Chuva here was so real and it was, it was evident to this detective that this was a real, real good woman with a, a, a great family who was just absolutely going through torment in her life, that she had to medicate herself with gambling. He became, this detective, he became a personal friend of mine. I have him at, at golf tournaments I do for charity, right? He became her advocate. Okay. <laughs> so when we would go in to see the Crown Attorney, he would say to the Crown Attorney, ah, he says, I'm not sure we have to send her to jail. He says, he says, don't worry about the banks. He says, you know, they can write it off. They probably got insurance, right? They come, everybody's, everybody's covered here. He says, you know, she has a way of, of giving back to the community. She's now at Gamblers Anonymous. She's facilitating and better that she's out in the community serving a conditional sentence than in jail. And we destroy her, we destroy her family. Okay. This case goes on in the courts for three years. In three years, I have her do another 50 hours of uh, counseling. Okay, so now we're up to 75 hours 
of, of counseling. I have her do, are you sitting down? 3,000 hours of community service, okay? So her whole life is work, kids, community service. And she's now a facilitator at Gamma's Anonymous. And it's actually the last case, okay? We went before uh, uh, a judge uh, who, who happens to be, believe it or not, a student of the great Austin Cooper, okay? And this judge, okay, found decisions that could justify conditional sentence and keep her out of jail. And we kept her out of jail. She got a two year less a day conditional sentence, which means that she's in the community. She can work, she can take care of her kids. She can continue her family. And she and the judge have an ongoing relationship. They write to each other every month to, this... to, see, to see how she's how, how she's doing. And in conversation, I wanna just ask you about how how she received all this this care and how what's it like to get a second chance like that she's got a new lease a new lease on life okay and it has tremendous gratitude and and the, and the judge saw that in, in in her that you know she, she came before the judge and she was expecting a penitentiary sentence and she was and i told her i said it's you know the crown's asking for it it's real and at the end, the Crown could have appealed. But her tshuva was so real and so profound that even the Crown became, right, a, a cheerleader. Uh, uh, wow. So Lotig Nov is all over the cases that you see. And sometimes the successes are less than others. But you do see some really profound chuva in your practice. It's an area, Reb Noah, where people can, can make chuva because there, there's ways, you know, Nebuch, you know, I'm representing a, a young Jewish girl on a dangerous driving causing death. She was driving to work 19 years old and she turned into the passing lane without her signal on. And her and another car went over the median and, and, and hit a tractor trailer. And the woman in the other car, mother of three, young oriental woman, she was dead on impact. And my client was in the hospital for nine months, having 15 operations, okay, to live. So there you can't, I mean, you can't, what do you say to the family? You can't bring back a life. But when you're talking about theft, you can give restitution to the stories. You because know, the highest level of Lotignov, as Rashi highlights as being the, the when, when taking it from a D-bear, which is a big principle with many laws, to one idea is, is genevot nefashot, stealing lives. But stealing is not taking. Stealing is temporarily taking. It seems like embedded in Lotignov, unlike Lotirtzach, which you know, on the deepest levels is the God image is gone. Um, it's unimaginable. Lotig Nov, as terrible as it is, stealing a person, implied in that is that it can be returned. And returned is lahashiv, tshuva. So right. based on this whole right. conversation, how do you want to wrap up this, 
seeing the Diber through Gonev Nefashot. It seems that when I hear this now, I'm thinking about not just how bad it is, but how the opportunity of returning. When somebody loses something and then they get it back, they appreciate it on another level. So similarly, on some meta level, when somebody becomes a thief and then they get their life back from stealing other lives or stealing other property, it's there's some sort of resurgence. So what does it mean to you, Gonev Nefashot, and how do you think you're going to relate to this Diber going forward? Well, you know, they're, they're, uh, as I said, when I uh, uh, delineated the two genres of theft, that they're, they're ones that you really don't have opportunities to facilitate chuba. And then in, in the ones that are, are more impulsive or in the case of this woman who had a gambling addiction, still, still, in fact, in fact, the judge in her decision in that case said that gambling is more insidious than people drug problems, right? And that's scary knowing that today the amount of advertisements and professional athletes that are signing their stamp, and I work in the mental health field, as you know, it's terrifying to, to think about the fact that there are 15-year-olds, 14-year-olds starting to build a gambling career with the stamp of their favorite players. This is a big issue. Um, I don't even want to get into that. That's a whole other issue. It's all other kind of work, but you watch, you're in the middle of a NHL, you know, seventh game. Okay, you think there's some entertainment value to sustain you there. And they break off. I don't know who these guys are. They come on and give me an opportunity and tell you what the odds are. Uh, it's shocking. It's, it's hard to process um, for another time. But to bring you back to that, Gonev Nefashot, and, and how it relates for you and, 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 and any you know, parting words that you want to say about that, you were getting into the person's chuva process themselves. So it, I think it, it, it comes back to Rebbe Kiva, and I think it comes back to judging somebody for the good, meritorious. So, so when they sit in front of me, I, I'm not judging the person, okay? I'm looking at, I'm looking at the hate, and I'm saying, how can I approach the hate that I can put the victim back into the position they were in before the hate. And the other, Reb Noach, is how can I take the sinner and put him back into the position he was before, before the sin? Okay. I get one more question for you, Arthur, and it's because I know that you're more than a lawyer. Um, you're an active family man. I would say you're a man of the people. You're known to... To many, you make a strong impression on people. You walk around with that smiles, laugh, smirk, smile that turns into a laugh, that turns into a smirk. People feel a connection to you. You're doing it now. You're a bit of a household name. You bring students in across the world, across Canada, and mentor them. What? A, tell us just a little bit about why you take mentorship so seriously. You know, I'm, I'm going to quote uh, David and I. And I don't know if he, he's already recommended this your to son you, my son so we got really uh, uh involved watching gary shandling's last 
documentary in his life when he's, he's uh, battling uh, his pan pancreatic uh, diseases. And he was giving you the emmas. He was a deep, deep guy. He just wasn't a funny guy, okay? And he said that when you get to a certain part in life, to the extent that you can mentor and mentor with sweetness, if you have something to mentor and give over, he says to him, you know, aside from, you know, the, the, the other uh, pleasures of life, which is the nachas from you know, your children and God willing, you know, grandchildren, and, you know, God willing communities, like we had Jay Simka last night, right? Those two, other than that, you know, it gives, it gives your career purpose that to the extent that you can mentor and you can do it with passion, okay? And, you know, I'll tell you a cute quick story. Okay, at one point, I had three law students, okay? I had REA, you're gonna love this, you'll love this, because one of them, okay, is your family member now through marriage. Okay, so I had REA Samuels, I had Yehuda Levy, okay, and I had David Israel. And they came to the court together and, you know, we discussed the case we had. It was a drug case. They came to the court and there were some issues about improper search, illegal search, charter of rights issues. And I walked by them and I hear them, you know, going over the legal issues and the legal remedies that are actually <laughs> And I said, I said, this is a base in. We formed a base in, okay, in the New Market Courthouse, okay. So, listen, we we and and the amazing thing is that, that they've all gone on, okay. And I get a lot of nachas because I I see what they've done uh, with their careers, and they've all gone on and and they know, okay. And I and this is something that I I teach them, Noah. This is Kita uh, Aleph, okay? And it's, it's the first principle that I, I try to give over to my law students is that money, okay, isn't your priority as it was maybe in my first 15 years, okay? I said, you know what? You take care of your clients, okay? The money takes care of itself. And when I have clients that come in, they go, Mr. Stern, I hear a little pricey. How much is it going to be? And I said to him, if you're not happy with the service you had, if you really feel that I didn't walk with you, okay, down this, this path, I said, I won't accept any. I won't, I'll have too much pusha to accept money from, too much shame. So that's the beauty of, that's the beauty of mentorship. You know. Arthur, thank you so much for sharing with us and for, 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 for reflecting on this debate. And many of the deb the debroke because a lot of them have come up in this conversation, and it just goes to show how prevalent it is in our daily lives when we stop to think about it. So true, and and uh, I gotta say that when we first spoke, and you were asking me how certain debare informed me and how I practice as a criminal lawyer, I didn't see a connection. Like a good rabbi, he got me to think and delve into. Them. And now 
I think every one of the deep rut effectuates uh, my practice. Thank you so much, Arthur. And that's all for today. Thanks for taking the time to listen. And we hope this episode has, in some small way, enriched your understanding of yourself, others, and God as you learn to integrate the Big Ten into your life. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening.